Well, Money Talks is brought to you by Solera Club. Solera Club is a technology-based investment, but it's royalty first. That means you get paid first, and there's no fees attached to it. So for more information, go to soleraclub.com. This week, NDP Premier Rachel Notley unveiled Alberta's new climate change policy, which featured, of course, a carbon tax. Just so you know, a carbon tax approach is widely favored by economists over alternatives like regulations determining CO2 output because it's more effective and less costly. Done right, as it's been in BC, it's better than the disastrous sort of cap-and-trade systems you've seen in place in Europe that had to be abandoned because they were such a failure. Well, today I'm not going to discuss the merits of man-made climate change and the various projected consequences. It doesn't seem like there's any appetite anyways for serious discussion. And by the way, was there a better example of that than the media outlets, major media outlets, rushing to get Neil Young's opinion on Alberta's new plan? I mean, really, other than the mainstream media, who gives a flying fig what Neil Young thinks about the intricacies and implications of Alberta's carbon tax? Unreal. But today, I'm going to restrict myself to that carbon tax. As I said, a big check mark to Rachel Notley's government for taking the carbon tax approach. The plan has won support from big oil sands producer because it creates certainty. It allows for growth of the oil sands while it gives the biggest emitters subsidies. My bet, their first response was spurred on by the thought that, oh my God, it could have been far worse. But when the applause dies down and we get past the superficial media analysis, I think it's going to be clear that impacting climate change was only one part of the agenda. And first off, The impact on climate change remains to be seen, given that according to Environment Canada, a report this year, the oil sands accounted for just over one-tenth of one percent of global greenhouse gas emissions in 2013. Canada as a whole, by the way, accounts for two percent of global emissions. Alberta accounts for about a third of Canada's total. It's a good bet, though, that the growth in emissions is going to be curtailed thanks to the carbon tax. Putting a price on emissions provides an incentive for a change in behavior. Much like when gas prices rose dramatically in 2011, many people opted to drive less and use other forms of transportation. And I think, as I say, the new carbon tax will at least slow down the growth in greenhouse gas emissions. But you know what? There's also three other guaranteed outcomes of that new policy that have very little to do with climate change. First off, the new tax is going to increase the cost for everyone, but especially on middle and upper income families who won't receive the subsidies. Number two, it's going to increase the size of the government bureaucracy, guaranteed. Number three, it's going to bring billions in new tax revenues for the Alberta government. In other words, more government, more taxes are guaranteed, which is going to please a lot of big government advocates. My problem is that I think it's a major opportunity lost that despite the absolute nonsense stated by Premier Notley, Alberta's carbon tax is not revenue neutral. In fact, even after the subsidies to big emitters and families below the medium income, tens of billions of dollars are going to go into the general revenues in Alberta in the next decade. Revenue neutral, by the way, means that whatever revenue the government takes in is given back in the form of lower taxes in other areas. That's what happened in British Columbia. It's legislated by law that every cent taken through the carbon tax automatically results in reduced business and individual income tax. To give me an example, the current BC budget forecasts that the carbon tax is going to take in about $1.2 billion. This is going to be offset by $1.6 billion of tax reductions and credits. Big government advocates clearly disagree. They don't want it given back to the public. They never do. But they show no sign of caring about economic growth, the unemployed, or the need 
needed revenue thanks to economic growth so they can meet their entitlement obligations. But you know what? If they could just take a step back from their own ideological bias for a moment, well, and see that having economic growth is important, they would see that the NDPs missed a huge opportunity to gain far more support for the carbon tax approach because they refused to lower corporate and individual taxes, which would have in turn spurred economic growth. But they blew it. Instead, the NDP insists on increasing the tax burden in Alberta, which is why I say with great confidence that Alberta's recovery is going to be far weaker than anticipated. The impact of increasing taxes on middle and upper income individuals is $320 in 2017, $470 2018, but it rises every year after that. Well, that's got to be added to the other tax increases from all three levels of government to assess the economic impact. In Alberta, property taxes are going up 4.9. I mean, sorry, in Edmonton rather, property taxes are going up 4.9 percent. In Calgary, they're going up 3.5 percent. Bang! More money out of your wallet. Corporate income tax rates are rising 20 percent. Individuals making over 125 grand are going to see a minimum jump in their provincial income tax rate by 20 percent, and it's a jump of 50 percent if you make over 300 grand. And then add in the federal Liberals' promised increase on incomes over 200,000. Throw in liquor and cigarette tax increases, as well as increases to some licensing and fees. And here you have it. More and more money taken out of individuals' pockets, taken out of businesses' pockets. You don't get an economic recovery with that. See, in today's economic environment, you've got falling oil and gas prices. You've got Calgary's declining commercial real estate market. You've had over 50, what, 55,000 jobs lost. Well, I'll tell you, failing to make the carbon tax revenue neutral is a major policy mistake. Money Talks is brought to you by Solera Club. For more information, go to soleraclub.com. I'm taking a break. i got a big, fat idea coming up for you. We also have Greg Weldon. If you're familiar with Greg Weldon, I'm sure you'll turn up the radio if you're not. This is the analyst that other analysts listen to. And as I say, miracle upon miracles, he can really express himself beautifully when it comes to these major economic issues that are facing us today. Also, Michael Levy, big, uh, sorry, top three stories that smart people are talking about. And my big fat idea, as I said, all of that coming your way. Stay with us. I have an incredible shocking stat for you this week and i'll just give you a little hint i'll give you time to think about it don't google it though let's see if you can test you you know we've had terrorist attacks obviously we're the two-week anniversary of what's gone on in paris but of course there was some in beirut russian air jetliner mali the list is a long one how many people do you think were killed in terrorist attacks this year it shocked me that's your hint. It shocked me. It's my shocking stat of the week. Michael Levy joins me right now. Top three stories that smart people are talking about. Mike, how about number three? Well, Mike, we hear so many reports about the demise of the Canadian uh, real estate market and the fact that it can't hold up and the fact that it's going to start coming up and housing prices are too high and the market's going to give back and prices are going to come down. Well, Here's a credible one, and the headline is, Rising Mortgage Rates Could Put a Damper on the Housing Market. Yeah, I think this is going to surprise people because, of course, you've got the backdrop of a weak economy. Yeah, they've got the debate going on in the States, but, uh, you know, there's, there's just no evidence that there's a big push to have right, rates higher, but it looks like they've already started. Well, they have, Mike, and this really surprised me because I follow this kind of thing, but this creeped up, and I think it's going to surprise listeners, too. Uh, the five-year rate is up about 20 basis points 
or one-fifth of one percent this fall. And according to the study that we saw, and this is a very credible study, we can look for another 60 to 70 basis point rise to almost one full percent higher for five-year mortgages. And this is according to Toronto Dominion Bank. And this could happen over the next six months. Yeah, and I think that's just something for people to be aware of. Now, I want to say this, though, Mike, and uh, you know, every time they've projected higher interest rates, something's bounced along to bring them back down after initial small bounce. So that remains to be seen. But as you say, that's the Toronto Dominion Bank's projection over a 1% total change. Uh, you know, if you if you have a three percent five year, it's going to go to four uh, percent. What's your number two story? Uh, well, Mike, I, I just want to make one more point because you made a very good point about something always comes along. But this is the way uh, TD put it: uh, mortgage rates are tied to Canadian bond yields, which are turn in turn are tied to U.S. bond yields, mm-hmm. and that's a really credible analysis because it looks like they, there is going to be a U.S. interest rate hike this coming month in December, which could send the bond yields higher. So I find it very, very credible. Number two, Mike, is debt load has many Canadians living on the edge with high housing prices largely to blame. And again, another credible study, this one by Manulife Bank. Yeah, I think that's a very good one because what surprised me, I had a look at that study myself, Mike, was uh, the, the sort of the, the danger number. Like one of the things that's happened, as you say, is that housing's gone up. So their their own asset to debt ratio is fine. But that means if you get in trouble, you can sell your, your house and the bank's okay. It's a cash flow issue. And I saw that there are some disturbing cash flow aspects to this. Oh, there is, Mike. In the past year, up to a third of Canadians are having to charge living expenses to their credit cards, lines of credit, or selling some of their investments just to pay everyday expenses. And 14%, Mike, that are already stuck with high debt loads, listen to this, have to use payday high interest rate loans just to pay their bills. Yeah, and that's where the danger lies. As I say, it's not that I have, you know, I'm picking a number out of the thin air, 500000 in debt, as long as my house worth a million, that protects the financial institution. But once my cash flow can't meet my monthly, and that's what I mean, those numbers are big. 14% is a huge number, and that's always where the problem was going to be. When you start rising, raising rates, as you just alluded to in your number three story, it's at the margin. It's the people on the outside that uh, sort of get in trouble. So that's why that one grabbed my eye. I think it's an excellent story. Well, I think so too, Mike. And just one final note on this. The current low interest rates, we Canadians are sitting at a debt to income of 164.6%. That explained quickly is $164.60 worth of debt for every dollar uh, or $100 of disposable income. Mike, that was at 110% just 15 years ago. So we as Canadians have taken on a tremendous amount of new debt. But I just want to say one other thing. Avery Schenfeld, who's chief economist at CIBC World Markets, takes a different point, and I think it's fair to point it out. He says the key figure to watch is employment rather than mm-hmm. consumer debt levels. So he is adding that in, that employment to him at CIBC is still the most important factor. I can't help myself to put this shot in there, though. Too bad too, too bad. so many of our provincial governments couldn't care less about employment. Uh, they talk about it. They do the things that are opposite to it. But that's not you saying that, Mike. That's Mike Campbell saying it. What's your number one story? 
Oh, Mike, this is one that absolutely you have been talking about and explaining even before the election, during the election. Most Canadians will be left out in the cold by Trudeau's proposed tax cut. This middle class tax cut, Mike, that we were all so high on and talking about affects so few Canadians. Well, keep in mind on the people making over two hundred grand, or it really impacts them at about two hundred and seventeen thousand. You're only talking two hundred and sixty-five thousand people, so you spread that out. It wasn't going to be much over millions of people. It wasn't, Mike. Well, let's uh, let's first look at middle class. Middle class are those earning approximately forty-five thousand to ninety thousand mm-hmm. dollars. That's what's considered. That's what the government is saying. That's the middle class tax cut. And, Mike, in, ni- in 2012, there was about 26 million tax returns were filed in Canada. Listen to this. 66% of those had incomes below $45,000 and won't benefit from the tax cut at all. Only 9 million Canadians had incomes between 45000 and 90000 yeah, and the the actual dollars and cents. I looked at an analysis of uh, someone making sixty two grand, and I think they were saving fifty one dollars. And again, it makes sense when you've got so few people at one end, and you're spreading it out. You're spreading out uh, income from two hundred and sixty five thousand people over nine million people. You know, it wasn't going to be much, and it's not. It's not, Mike. And just one more quick fact is that the government is building in a, 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 approximate, a small factor of saying that they expect that there are going to be high-income earners who are going to find a way legally not to pay as much tax, and they've built in a prudence factor of $600 million into this uh, uh, scenario where they will collect probably $600 million less in taxes from higher-income Canadians. C.D. Howe did a study and says that amount is not $600 million. It's going to be $7.3 billion, 4.5% less taxable income from high-end Canadians. So the government, I think, is in for a shock, and you've said this so often, is that if you raise taxes on those that pay the higher income tax, who produce the jobs, who have the income that make a lot of the country go, these people are going to find another way, and C.D. Howe just blows up the government's assumptions. Yeah, when prices change, people change. Mike, thanks very much. Have a great weekend. You too, Mike. Got to take a break. My big fat idea, you're looking for some growth? Well, I'm looking forward to uh, Colin Bouquet is going to join me. He's the founder CEO of VentureX, uh, but he's got a great idea, and we'll share it with you in Mike's Big Fat Idea in a moment. Coming up, Greg Weldon. You'll love it. Stay with us. A shocking stat and a goofy award. Right now, though, it's time for Mike's Big Fat Idea. Welcome to the show, Colin Bouquet. He's founder, CEO of VentureX. Uh, very pleased to have him with me on the line here. Colin, what about it? What's your big fat idea? Okay, well, Mike, thanks for having me on first. And secondly, the big idea of the week is investing in what analysts are calling the telecom infrastructure upgrade supercycle. Uh, the people love those kind of words, by the way. <laughs> but give us a cup, just a, you know, we don't have time to go into it here in detail, but give us a couple of highlights of why you like that sort of, as you say, the telecom infrastructure. It's got to be upgraded and it's coming in big time. Yeah, well, you know, it all boils down to all these smartphones we have, streaming services like Netflix and Spotify, uh, as well as newer ideas like the Internet of Things, which everyone's talking about. But the fact is that, um, uh, data usage has effectively been doubling every year since 2010. 
You know, an interesting stat for you is that right now there are around 8 billion devices, 8 billion devices connected to the Internet. And by 2018, Cisco is expecting that number to reach around 25 billion devices. So the reality is that just the current infrastructure on a global basis can't handle the amount of data that's being pushed through it. So there's these massive upgrade and expansion plans underway all over the planet. Um, you know, Bell, TELUS, and Rogers here in Canada have all recently announced multi-billion dollar initiatives. And in the U.S., <clears throat> the, the big players as well, like Comcast, Verizon, and Google Fiber are, are making even larger announcements. And, uh, well, give me, sorry, I was just yeah. going to say, can you give me an idea how to play that then? I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I think that's, uh, by the way, a very good explanation of it. But uh, how do I play that? How, how do I invest in that kind of stuff? Well, you know, one of the things we think is really interesting is that the companies that are really well positioned to benefit from all of this are the specialty contractors that are actually doing the construction and installation yeah. of these new fiber optic networks. And there's, yeah, I, there's a couple that we like in that space as well. Well, maybe give us an because by the way, I'm I'm nodding my head as you say that. I've always felt it. You know, for example, when we got on, thanks to Mark Leibovit, uh, the marijuana legalization kind of trend. Mm -hmm. It was Mark who said, "Hey, don't go to those companies. Go to the guys who make all their equipment." Exactly. You know? And this is what you're. That's sort of the same kind of theme. Uh, what can you give us a couple of names from that sector? No, absolutely. I mean, there's there's um, you know there's a large established pub co called Dicom Industries. It trades on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker uh, DY. It's got about two billion of annual revenue, and it's growing very fast for a big company. It's got great long-term growth prospects. Um, but for even greater leverage to the sector, we've got smaller, <clears throat> high-growth newcomers like Light Access Technologies. It trades on the Canadian Stock Exchange under ticker LTE. Uh, its revenues are increasing exponentially right now, and they're booking larger deals as well, including a recent $7 million contract, which has really put them on the map. Uh, just, just one more quick thing here with time. Um, okay, so someone looks at these kind of things, and I think it is a fascinating bro bro um, sorry, sector, as you've just alluded to. Uh, how long should I expect to hold this stuff, though? Well, you know, we think these are great growth stories, and um, it, it's really giving investors a chance to participate in a really high-growth sector that's going to last for many years to come. This super cycle is expected to run for five to ten years. And so, you know, what we see there is that a lot of growth prospects, but at the same time, for some of the smaller companies, we're going to see some consolidation and some M&A opportunities by the bigger players as time moves on. So, uh, again, if you're doing it, you should plan on, you know, what, a two-year hold, five-year hold kind of thing? I, I would think so. You're going to see a huge amount of run-up over that time period as, as this really gets rolled out. Wow. Uh, great stuff. That's exactly what Mike's big fat idea is supposed to do. Colin Bokett, thank you for taking the time. Thanks very much, Mike. Colin is founder, CEO of VentureWex, uh, and you can find them at Venture werx.com venturewerx.com I'm going to take a break I've got Greg Weldon on the line coming up I think you're going to love this guy I want you to stay tuned for my shocking stat I've got Ozzy Jurek and I've got Victor Adair live from the trading desk you're listening to Money Talks <laughs> 